0: We have a rather impressive uh, video team here at the church. They they made an 8-bit video game for the book of James. So, not that crazy? Pretty impressive. So, uh, Glad you guys are here this morning. Hope everyone had a good last week. Hope you got to rest a little bit. Maybe you didn't rest. If you hosted um, for Thanksgiving, that's not really rest at all, is it? Uh, a lot of work. But hopefully you got to spend some time with people you care about and, and uh, at least have a couple of days off work or something, so glad you guys are here. We are starting a new book of the Bible. We just got done with the book of Ephesians, um, which was written by Paul, and we're starting the, the book of James. I, I have taught this before. This is one of those few books that I have taught uh, a couple of times, and it's a, a fantastic book. It's one of those books that I think is worth kind of revisiting every couple of years, but, it, but it's been quite a few years, I think, since we've done Uh, the book of James, but anyways, I'm gonna get to some history about that here in a second. If you weren't here last week, when we finished up the book of Ephesians, we talked about the armor of God. And if you have no idea what that means, chapter six of Ephesians, a very famous chapter of the New Testament, talks about how we are to put on the full armor of God, which is essentially a metaphor for putting on the teachings or living out the teachings of the Bible. That's all that really means. Um, We have a tendency to kind of overcomplicate things, and again, these analogies are used in the Bible, putting on the armor. It's not literal armor. It's just wearing the teachings of God in our life. That's all that means. But you can go back and watch that, and um, you can read the whole book of Ephesians in about 15 minutes, so you can go back and uh, and catch up on that. This week, we're gonna talk about this. I'm gonna throw this out, and then I'm gonna do some brief history, and then we'll pray, and then we'll, we're only gonna do half of chapter one, by the way, because there's just a lot of information in this chapter. What we're gonna talk about today is how we are called to be the first fruits of God. And I'll explain what that means, of course, at the end of this, but that's an agricultural term. Specifically, it's a term that that people who owned vineyards would use, who grew grapes, right? They would have their first fruits, and I'll explain all that at the end. But where we're gonna end today in verse 18 of of chapter 1 of James It says that God has created us to be the first fruits of all of the things he has ever made. That's what we're called to be, and we'll explain that, okay? Before I do that, you should have got a notes handout when you came in, and everything I'm gonna talk about will be in that notes handout. Everything will be on the screens. If you have the Experience Community app, everything will be on that as well. If you have a Bible, a physical copy, We're way back in the New Testament towards the end, right after the book of Hebrews, you have the book of James. Now, before I pray, let me give you some history because the the background of this book of the Bible I think is particularly interesting. The first thing that is particularly interesting is who wrote this book of the Bible. So James was the literal brother of Jesus. Um, Half brother, you could say, right? Same mom, different dads. Uh, Jesus had, that's a good joke, Jesus had, the Bible says, several siblings, both sisters and brothers. Jesus was, of course, the firstborn because his mom, Mary, uh, was a virgin impregnated by the Holy Spirit, not any weird way, but it says that the Holy Spirit uh, put Jesus into her. She gave birth, Joseph and her husband eventually had more kids, the Bible says. So James was the younger half-brother of Jesus. But what is interesting, and we'll see it here just in the very beginning of James, James didn't play that card, right? Hey, you guys know who my brother is? He didn't play that card. He wanted to be known as a servant of Jesus, not as the younger brother of Jesus. Um, Oddly enough, James did not think that Jesus was the Savior until after his death, burial, and then he witnessed the resurrection. Now, it's very easy for us, 2,000 years removed, to judge people in the Bible. Well, why didn't he believe he was around him all the time and he didn't believe he was the savior. Well, let's have some grace here. Let's say you grew up and your parents told you your older brother was God in the flesh. <laughs> Are you sure? Are you sure, mom? Right? And and so if we step back, we can see that this was probably a hard pill for him to swallow. But eventually he did, and he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, they estimate that there were somewhere in the neighborhood of about 30,000 Christians in Jerusalem when, when James was the head of the Christian movement in this town, so uh, in this city. So a lot of followers of Jesus that James was, was kind of the shepherd over, but he eventually became that, that pastor, that shepherd over that church. Um, the church historian Eusebius wrote that James prayed so much that his knees looked like the knees of a camel. This is interesting. Well, what that means is, they, I'm sure they didn't literally look like a camel's knees, but, but this, this historian said he was known for praying so much that you can imagine his knees were probably shredded, right? Because he was on them all the time. Another interesting thing was James was eventually killed. He was stoned to death for his faith in Jerusalem by Jews. So he was killed by his own people, right? The same people that crucified his older brother, eventually stoned him to death about 30 years after that because of his faith and because the Christian movement was growing so fast in Israel. So because James died more than likely in 62 AD, we don't know for sure. Some people believe he died a little bit later in the 60s, about 68, 69 AD, but most thinks about 62. So if he died in 62, that meant that this book would have obviously been written before that. And so you, you, you can probably pen this book written in about 55, 56 AD, and it was written to the 12 tribes that were dispersed abroad. What that means is this, and this is another interesting fact, there was so much persecution going on in Jerusalem that a lot of Jewish Christians had left Jerusalem, which is interesting, I believe God allowed the persecution in Jerusalem to shove those Christians out of their homeland and to start spreading the gospel all around the world. So these these Jewish Christians had dispersed and they're going all over the Middle East and even further uh, uh, into the Mediterranean area and to Europe and places like that. They're spreading out and that's who he was writing this letter to. The other thing that is interesting about that is James was writing to people who grew up religious. Grew up religious. So a lot of us, and this is changing in the United States, but I think it's still the case with a lot of people in the South, is a lot of people grew up in religious households, but they didn't really have a relationship with Jesus. And so what he is writing to is he is writing to people who grew up in religious households, but were very new in their faith, okay? So he's writing to people maybe similar to to, to some of us in this room. Now the book of James, this this letter that he wrote, is very similar to the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. If you've never read the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs is not one of those books you just like crack open and you're like, man, I'm gonna sit down and read all of Proverbs today. It's not really written like that. Proverbs was written kind of line by line is a different idea, a different topic. So almost every single line in the book of Proverbs holds a lot of weight. There's a lot of discussion around it. James is written in a very similar fashion. It jumps from topic to topic to topic very, very rapidly. I say this is a great book for men to read because there is absolutely no fluff, there is no filler, there is no flowery language, it's just do this, don't do that, stop doing this, start doing this. Very, very simple, straightforward stuff. So we're gonna cover a ton of topics. But some of the topics that stand out are going through trials. We're gonna talk about that today. Um, Adhering to scripture, doing what the scripture tells us to do. Taming the tongue, that's a good one that some of us can work on. And then how we use our resources. Not just our money, how do we use our time? How do we use our talent? One of the big things in the book of James, and we'll get to just in the next couple of chapters, is it's not enough just to know what is right, we must do what is right. It is a moral warning. It is a warning to people who know what is right and wrong to make sure that they do what is right and stay away from what is wrong. Very, very straightforward. A wonderful book of the Bible. Okay, I think you'll really enjoy it. Again, we're only gonna do half of chapter one today, but before we jump into the scripture, let me pray and um, we'll see where God takes us. I hope you are encouraged today, okay? I I hope you leave here pumped up a little bit, all right? Father God, we love you. God, we thank you so much, Lord. Um, I thank you so much for everyone in this room right now. I thank you for the opportunity to do what we're doing right now, to come in and to to worship you freely, to crack open a Bible, God, and to be able to read it freely. Um, Lord, I pray that as we do that this morning, I pray that you bless this church. Not just this church, I pray that you bless every church in our city. I pray, God, that you bless our other campuses and the churches in those cities. And Father, we pray that, that everything we do today that ultimately it lifts you up, that ultimately it brings attention to you, that ultimately, God, we can lean on you more and trust you more, regardless of what life looks like right now. God, we love you, we thank you, we pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm gonna read a little bit. We will go back and we will break it down and um, we'll see what happens, okay? here's, Here's what it says. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing." Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable, in all his ways. So, first thing, I already kinda touched on this. First thing, James says, I am a servant of God. Now, Paul, who wrote the book of Ephesians, says that James was a pillar of, of Christianity. He is a pillar of Christianity. And James, you have to admire him from the, for, for this, he had no desire to ride on the coattails of who his brother was. Again, I, I can't say that I would be this good of a person. If Jesus was my brother, I'd probably tell everyone that. You know, do you know who my brother is? God, right? You know, so I, I would tell everyone that I was related to, to Jesus. James didn't do that. He just simply, he, he, he announces himself as a servant of Jesus. Not the brother of Jesus, a servant of Jesus. Now, we learn a lesson right out of the gate from this. What we learn right out of the gate, if you look at his introduction is, it's not about the name of James. It is about the name of Jesus. And in our lives, it is not about my name. It's not about your name. It's not about what I can do or what you can do or our accolades or, or, or the focus and the emphasis on us. It should always be about his kingdom and not ours. And now that's simple stuff, man. But even in Christianity, we can very, very easily get addicted to people thinking that that, that we're something special. And we need to deflect that, and deflect it right onto the one who deserves the credit, who is Jesus Christ. And we see this right off the bat from James. And then James James kinda comes at us from, from a pretty tough angle here. He says that it should be a great joy, you should consider it a great joy that you are going through hardships and trials. Now, he is writing to people who have been persecuted, forced out of their homeland. Maybe they have relatives that have been killed or have been arrested for their faith. And he says, you should count this as a joy. Now, he is not suggesting, James is not suggesting that we go out and look for hardship. James is not suggesting that we manufacture or embellish things in our life to make it seem like life is tough. You guys know people like this, right? they're really stressed out and, and they're just like, you know, they're all a mess and you're like, what's wrong, you know, what can I do? And they're like, oh, I don't know what color to paint the bathroom. And you're like, that's dumb, right? So like, that, that's not worth getting stressed out about. But James says that the reason why we should count trials and tribulations as a joy is because it is only through those hard times that we learn things, that we grow, that we start to mature, that we develop character. This is how we develop character, because there is no maturity without tension. Any of you who have ever worked out, there is no building a muscle without putting a weight in your hand. It is only by putting resistance against that muscle that it builds. And without that resistance, it cannot mature, it cannot grow. So verse four kind of tells us why God allows difficult situations in our life because it makes us into better people. It creates stamina, endurance, depth in us. Without hard times, we cannot mature, we cannot develop into the kind of people that God wants us to be. This is very practical. So if you're going through hard times, right? Let's say you lost a loved one, or you're going through a divorce, or or maybe you're bankrupt, or whatever the case may be, You don't go looking for someone that's never had to go through anything tough in their life. Hey man, like I know you've never been through anything, can you help me through this? Um, Asked no one ever, That's, that's not how it works. You find someone that has been through some fire, made it out the other side okay by the grace of God, and you ask them for guidance. You ask them for wisdom, right? Because they have been through it. We cannot properly develop unless we have been tested a little bit pushed a little bit, and we come out the other side with wisdom, we come out the other side with with stamina, with abilities to to weather these storms. So we gain wisdom from life experiences. And those of you who are in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you understand what I'm saying. It is virtually impossible to make it into your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s without going through some kind of suffering, without being uh, put through some kind of, of test or trial. So we gain wisdom from those experiences. So what do you do though, and I'm I'm not picking on you if you're young in here, I'm I'm encouraging you with this. What do you do if maybe you are in your 20s and 30s and you haven't been through anything tragic? Can can I just not be a wise person? No, 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 no. What's interesting about this is, is we are told by James to intentionally ask God for the gift of wisdom. One can gain a certain level of wisdom without going through these experiences Yet, you will eventually go through these experiences. But what James is telling us to do is we should be proactive and seek God's wisdom before we get put into terrible situations. So Jesus, man, you gotta love Jesus, you gotta love the Bible. There there are no surprises. If we read the Bible and do what it tells us to do, life does not really throw us as many curveballs as if we don't read the Bible and do what Jesus tells us to do. One of the things that Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John is he says, in this life there will be suffering. And it's remarkable to me how many Christians are caught off guard that that bad things happen in life. Oh, how could God allow this to happen? There's probably a lesson to be learned in this, and I'm not taking away from whatever tragedy one might have had in their life, but we are certain to face suffering because Jesus said it, in this life, there will be suffering. So if we know that suffering is going to come in some form or fashion, it would behoove us to pray for God's wisdom on the front end so when this tragedy comes, we're not knocked off course, that we can stand firm in that, that we can navigate these trials. And what's fascinating is the gift of wisdom, unless I'm wrong, but I haven't had anyone find anything otherwise in the scripture, the gift of wisdom is the only gift of the Holy Spirit that I can find in scripture that is promised to us every single time we ask for it. It even says that God will give it ungrudgingly and generously. So if you're in your 20s or your 30s or heck, if you're 15 years old in here and you have a prayer life, I would be asking for God to give you wisdom every single time you pray. So when life storms come, you're able to withstand it. Here is the problem though. When we either fail to approach God, this is gonna be very common sense, whenever we fail to approach God or if we approach God half-heartedly, and this is where a lot of us fall if we're just being honest, right? Hey, God, will you help me? And in the back of my mind, you know, I'm like, well, God's not gonna do anything. I'm gonna have to do it myself. Whenever I approach God like that, James says, don't expect much from God because you're doubting him because you don't believe he can help you. So when we approach God in that manner, we're double-minded and we are unstable. This is how simple this is. God is pure love, God is pure wisdom, God is the creator, God is truth, he is power, okay? So if we're in a relationship with God, we have access to all those things and we have stability in our life. When we do not have a relationship with God, this is very logical and common sense, we do not have access to the truth, to to, to true love, to true wisdom, to true power, and so we are unstable people. When we do not have a relationship with Jesus, this is why you know there are people who will come to church every single week, but they don't have a relationship with Jesus. And then something tragic happens in their life and they're done with God. Well, the the truth is you were never really with God in the first place. And so when that wind came, it wasn't a big deal to knock you off course because there was no root there. There was no stability there. So we have to be proactive before bad times come. Now it sounds bizarre, but this whole process should be a joy. And you're like, well, wait a second, so in the middle of going bankrupt, I should be like, God, God thank you so much for this. <laughs> I, I don't think that's what the scripture is saying. What I think the scripture is saying is this, and you, you older cats in the room will know exactly what I'm talking about. When we look back on life, and even really tragic things like like loved ones passing away and hard financial times and and, and hard curveballs that have been thrown in our life and our past, it's not that we loved it in the moment, but now looking back as a mature, developed, good person, you can look back and say, thank God I went through those things because they made me into the dynamic person that I am today, if we are wise enough to learn from those things, right? If we just wanna shake our fist at God, you're not gonna learn anything from those things and you're just gonna become a bitter, unstable person. But when we look back at the turbulence in our life and we say, God, thank you for bringing me through that, we become strong, we develop strong moral character. God wants that for us. That's why he lets us go through bad things. We must want that for ourselves as well. We must want to grow in character, okay? But here's the thing, there's always going to be tension. Look at this next part. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass. Its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him." So what this section is talking about is it talks about two different demographics of people. Basically people who who have, he says, humble circumstances, basically people that do not have much by the world standards, okay? That's the first group. And then he talks to people that have a lot by the world's standards. And what James says to people that, that will say, we'll use the word poor, but I'm going to throw that in, in quotations because I'll, I'll touch that on the next slide. He says to poor people, do not lament your poverty because what you do have, God has supplied for you and you have enough. It's easy to say when, when when we're we're kind of on top of the mountain. It is tough to, to to buy into this when when things are tight, right? But where our mind has to go is is if I am eating, if I have shelter, if I have transportation, if I have a wife, if I have my kids, if I have my health, man, I'm I'm blessed, right? I'm taken care of. So that's what he's saying on the first part. The second thing that James is saying is. If you do have money, if you do have comforts, do not let that be your source of joy. Now, here's where Americans fall. We fall in a very weird place. We actually fall prey to both of these things. Um, When it comes to wealth, globally speaking, uh, there's really not many poor people in the United States. We live in a nation to where it is almost impossible to starve to death. And I'm not trying to, 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 to diss on people who are homeless or who are, or who are in poverty, but, but we live in such an affluent land. I mean, we give out smartphones uh, to, to people when we should be creating jobs and we should be doing other good things with that, building shelters and things like that. But anyway... That's not me trying to get political. I'm just saying, like, it's dumb to spend $1,200 on a phone when you could spend $50 on a phone and use the other $1,150 to pay someone to work and and build wealth. But anyways, so we live in a land to where, um, relatively speaking, we're all wealthy. We also live in a land (laughs) to where it is really easy to look at our neighbor across the street and go, I cannot believe it. He lives in a 3,000-square-foot house, and mine's only 2,500. He drives an infinity. I only drive a Nissan. And what happens is, as though we are blessed and we are taken care of, the sins of materialism, and envy, and greed, and not appreciating the, the things that God has done for us, they start to easily kind of, kind of sneak in, don't they? So we all have to, all of us have to strive to be appreciative, we have to strive to be humble, we have to strive to live open-handed. You wanna know why? Because ultimately, none of it is yours. None of it. You, you know, sometimes people make really asinine arguments on Facebook, if you can imagine. They make really <laughs> dumb arguments. And sometimes people will write things like, I believe Jesus would have been a capitalist. And they'll say, well, I believe Jesus would have been a socialist. Biblically speaking, Jesus could give two flips about your political systems <laughs> but and, and economic systems. But... What Jesus did teach us is this, that if I have enough to eat and that person over there doesn't, I'm to live open-handed and make sure that they eat. Not by a mandate of a government, government, but by the mandate of love that should be in our hearts. That if I have been blessed, it should be my obligation to bless you as well. That's how we should live, open-handed. Why? Because it's not yours. You are stewarding what ultimately belongs to God. Guys, that's not just our money, that's your marriage, that's your children, that's your home, that's your occupation. It is all given to you by God for us to see how we will handle that in this life, okay? So we have to be careful not to fall prey to these things. What we also have to remember is this, it's all temporary. The sufferings of this life are temporary and the blessings of this life are temporary. But how we handle, listen, how we handle the bad times and how we handle the good times determines how we inherit our eternity. They have eternal ramifications. And if we love Jesus and the bad, and if we love Jesus and the good, you know what's fascinating about humans? There's a lot of us that fall away when times are bad, man, and there's a heck of a lot more that fall away when times are good. And we need to make sure we honor Jesus in both times. And if we do, we will, we will inherit the crown of life which is just a very fluffy word for for heaven, right? That we will inherit an eternity with God. So look at this progression real quick, and you you need to remember this because we're gonna talk about another progression that's not nearly as positive in the next part. So first, God uses trials to make you into better people, makes you into more mature people, people with endurance. Second, for those who seek God, God gives wisdom so we can have wisdom to navigate trials before they come. Don't wait until things fall apart to call on the name of God. Call on the name of God now, so when, if, if and when things do fall apart, you're stable, you're ready, okay, that's number two. Third, because of gain wisdom in the maturity that God gives us over trials and over prayer, we can learn to appreciate life. We can learn to appreciate the truly beautiful things in life, even when times are difficult. Lastly, if we steward life well, we inherit eternity with God. This is a progression we just covered. Now let's talk about a completely different progression in this next part. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay, the first thing is this. If you've ever heard a Christian or anyone say, well, God is tempting me, that is bad theology. That is not biblical. God does not tempt us to sin. He may test us for the sake of building us up and making us better, but God does not use temptation to do sin in in any of the things he does. He never wants us to sin. So who is to blame when we fall to sin? We are. We are the ones to blame for falling to sin. What we do really, really well in American Christianity is what we call blame shifting. It's everyone else's fault except for mine, right? Everyone that We do that with everything in life, but we do that with sin a lot in Christianity in the United States. So when we sin, if you become materialistic or you steal or you look at pornography or whatever the case is, it, 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 it is your fault. You made that decision. And what happens is there are things that tempt us and we get so close to that temptation that we eventually fall to that temptation. And that is our fault, no one else's fault but ours. So look at this progression. When we lean on God during turbulence and times of trouble, we, we, we grow in a positive manner. We become mature, we have endurance, we, we gain wisdom, right? We grow in a good way. Now, when we do not lean on God during situations in life and when we lean on ourselves and what we want, we move in a completely opposite direction. Now, this is very, 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 very important. This is one of those passages, verse 15, that you should star or highlight or circle or do whatever you gotta do, because it's very, very important. And it basically says this. When temptation goes unchecked, it eventually becomes sin. Now listen, temptation is not a sin. I'm gonna talk about that in the next slide. Temptation is not a sin. But what temptation is is like a big flashing yellow warning light. Don't go near this thing, right? Stop that. Move away from this. It's like if you're at the office and you're a married woman and there's this really attractive, charismatic guy and you guys flirt a lot, right? Now, you haven't maybe sinned quite yet, but if that temptation goes unchecked, eventually you're going to have an affair on your husband. It's going to give birth to sin, Now, when that sin goes unchecked, right? So we have given in to sin. We've gotten too close to temptation. We didn't stop that. When we we commit a sin and we do not feel remorse for that, when we do not ask God to forgive us of that, that unrepentant sin then grows and gives birth to death. That can be the death of the soul. It can be the literal death of the body. It can be the death of the mind. It can be the death of emotion. And the reason this is so important is we all need to hear this, guys. You know what's fascinating? I have gotten emails in the past that say, "Corey, why do you talk so much about sin? (laughs) One, it's a church. (coughs) And two, if the Bible says that the devil is like a roaring lion looking to devour you, I love you and I don't want your life to fall apart. I don't want your marriage to fall apart. I don't want your kids to hate your guts. I don't, want your, I don't want you to lose your job. I don't want you to fall apart. I love you, right? And if there's a cliff over there and you keep dancing on it and you're like, why do you keep talking about the cliff? you're about to fall off of it. We need to know this about sin. Sin has an insatiable appetite. The devil's desire for you is to steal, kill, destroy. None of those things are good things. That's not cute. It's not cuddly. You can't dance around with it. You can't dabble in it. Do you hear me? Because it will absolutely destroy your life. You may think it's fun to get that affirmation from that cute guy at work. When your kids find out you cheated on their dad, they're not gonna like you. It's gonna hurt people. It's gonna hurt you. And it's gonna separate you from the Lord. How dare you, Corey? Because I love you. I love you a lot. And I don't want you to make decisions like that. Stay away from sin. Now again, temptation is not a sin. Sin occurs when we give ourselves over to the temptation. And that doesn't even have to be in action. That can be in our minds. We know this because Jesus was talking to the religious folks. And they were talking about what the worst sins are. And they got all cocky and they said, well, I've never cheated on my wife, Jesus. And Jesus says, well, if you've ever lusted after another woman, you have. Up here. Well, I've never killed anyone, Jesus. Well, if you've ever had hatred in your heart, you sure have. Jesus said this. So we can, we can give in to the temptation up here. And when this happens chronically, it leads to spiritual, mental, and sometimes even physical degradation. It is amazing what a, a degraded mind will do to the physical body. And though Satan is active in tempting us, we have the choice to get away from temptation. If you can't get away from that guy at work, find another job. Do whatever you have to do to get away from that temptation. And so here's the thing, we must not be deceived. I love how James says this. To think that anything evil comes from God, only good comes from God. God is the giver of all good things in our life. Well, Corey, I know bad people that still get good good things, That's because there's a thing called common grace, that God reigns on the just and the unjust, that sometimes the unjust get good things in their life because God loves them too. God is the father of lights. They call him the father of lights because he is the truth, and the truth illuminates what is right and what is wrong. And the giver of all good things wants to show us what is good for us and what is bad for us. And he is unchanging. I love this, it almost makes you say a bad word, but the shifting shadows, right? It's a hard thing to say in front of thousands of people. But God does not change like shifting shadows. He is unchanging, he is stable. We can depend on him. Now here is the the, the neatest thing about what we're gonna talk about today. So here's what we've talked about. God made us in his image. God has sent his son to to pay for our sin, to die on the cross. So God made us to look like him, right, to resemble him. God sent his son to pay the price for our evil. He doesn't stop there. God graciously gives us the word. So following God is not ambiguous. It's not gray. It's crystal clear how we follow God. And the reason why God made us in his image, sent his son, and gave us the word of God was he created us to be first fruits. Now what in the heck does that mean? In a vineyard setting, the first fruits were the best of their crop. So what a vineyard owner would do is he would look out on all of his grapes, all of his crops, he would pick the best, the brightest, the most flavorful grapes, and here's why he would set them aside first because he knew the best wine would come from those grapes. Do you hear me? He knew the best things that he could do was with this group. That this, would, this is the most precious, the most valuable part of his vineyard. Those were his first fruits. Another thing in, in the Old Testament, when people had crops, right? It was actually part of the, the Old Testament law, that you would take your first fruits, that was the best 10% of your crops, and you would set that aside and dedicate that to God. They would store it in the storehouse for times of famine. You would let people who are migrating through eat from that part of your crop, that it was set aside for God's use, that their best was set aside for God. Not their leftovers, their best, their first fruits. We are called to be this. We are called to be the greatest thing that God ever created. We are called with a purpose, and we are called to be dedicated and committed to the vineyard owner. That's what we are called to be. God made us in his image. He sent his son to pay for our mistakes, and he gave us the word of God. Why? Because we're the most precious thing that God has ever done. First fruits. So, To be first fruits, first we have to develop character. You know what's interesting about fine wine? It has to be pressed and it has to be aged. Do you hear me? (laughs) So though it is not always fun to be pressed and aged, we are to take the trials of life as opportunities to grow as people, to find endurance, to gain wisdom, but before those hard times come, we have to be living in a relationship with Jesus. Before those hard times come, we have to be living in a relationship with Jesus. Because if we're not, those hard times are gonna knock us off course. They're gonna knock us off. They're gonna, we're, gonna, we're the ones who are gonna shift around like surging seas, like, like shadows, James says. So we have to have a relationship with Jesus. We have to be praying for wisdom on the front end. Guys, this is going to sound really arrogant, and I don't mean it to be. I have been in, in meetings before where we talk about serious stuff. I've been in, in meetings that, that have a biz, you know business stuff, like buying buildings and things like that. And, and I know these meetings are coming, so what I do is I pray on the front end. So whenever I walk in that door or walk in that person's house or walk into this terrible situation, I'm ready, right? Guns are loaded, if you will, right? I'm, I'm ready. And it's funny because sometimes we'll get into these, these meetings and they'll say, hey, can we pray before we do this? And, I'm, and I wanna be cocky and be like, have you not been praying yet? But when you do it on the front end, I don't have to like crazy, hurry, try to throw some prayers together so God is in this. I've been with God every day about this. I'm not try- Again, I'm not trying to be arrogant. This is how you should live. Walk with Jesus every day so when something tragic happens, you're not scrambling to ask God to forgive you of all the evil you've been doing so God can get to the problem that you're facing. You're already ready to rock, right? You're already ready to meet life head on. What this is, is it's being proactive versus reactive. And you and I live in a society that is reactive. Man doesn't come to church until his wife's walking out the door. I'm here to give my life to God. Buddy, that's great, but it might be too late for your marriage. Should have been proactive versus reactive. Ah, oh, my kids are running wild. They're doing all this stuff. Have you raised them to fear God? No, but I want to now. We'll do our best. Proactive versus reactive. This is how we're to live our lives, to develop that character. We're also to be content with where God has us now. That is tough. Can we be honest humans in here this morning? It's tough, man, it's tough. We live in such a materialistic society. You know, we're, we're like, we think that we're oppressed if we have like an iPhone 10. Oh. It doesn't have a 4K video ability. Because you're gonna watch videos on a screen the size of this room, right? It's the only, thing, the only reason that 4K applies. And and so we we are so sometimes unappreciative of the things that God has has put in our life. So we need to be careful not to let the things we don't have become our our, our source of discontentment. And we need to make sure that we don't let the things that we do have become our source of contentment because they're all gonna go away. They're all gonna pass away. And the only thing that's gonna be left is our relationship with Jesus. You know what I'm learning as I get older? And listen, guys, I can get materialistic just like anyone else can. I can look across the street at my neighbor's house and be like, man, what the heck? Why does everything they have look so much nicer than what I have? I can do that. You know what I'm learning though as I get older? I'm learning to actually to, to, to see things um, that I feel like most people don't see. Uh, I, I like to drive without the radio on and the window's down and I just like to feel the wind and look at the trees. I like to sometimes just sit in our living room and just like look at my family. I know that sounds weird. (laughs) But I can just stare at my kids and be like, man, how cool is that, right, those are my kids. We also need to pray for humility and remember that everything we have is ultimately God's and that should lead us to live open-handed. And that should lead us to live appreciative lives. It should help us see the most important things. Can, can, can I talk to you like a, like a dad for a second, not, a, not as a pastor or a friend, but like a, like a grumpy old man for a second? <laughs> do you know what you should strive to do? This is your homework. If you are out in public, if you're at a restaurant or if you're at a coffee shop and you're sitting there by yourself, maybe you're waiting for someone or maybe you're just getting lunch alone, try this, don't look at your phone. Look at people. Look at what's going on around you. Take time to ingest that real life is happening all around you. I've made it a point in my own life, if I have a meeting with someone at a restaurant or a coffee shop and I'm sitting there 15, 20 minutes by myself because I always show up early, I said, I'm not gonna look at my phone. I'm gonna gonna sit here, right? Look at people. People are weird to look at, right? That's fun. (laughs) You can look at people. You can think you can maybe like take a, a notepad of paper and write down ideas. You can do all kinds of other stuff. I recommend, just, just unplug from that stuff for a little bit. I remember years ago, uh, Austin and, and Kyle and I went and saw the Foo Fighters play at, at Bridgestone and you know they, they come out and everyone's phone goes up because everyone's so busy taking a picture of the Grand Canyon that they actually never look at the Grand Canyon, but, but everyone's phone comes up and I remember Dave Grohl came out there and he said, hey. Just put down your phones and enjoy the music tonight. And I was like, love that guy, right? That's fantastic. But it was basically saying, like, open your eyes and live life a little bit. Do you know, you and I as Christians, that's how we should be living. And so many Christians are missing the true, beautiful things in life because we're focused on things that are really insignificant and fleeting. So... In that same vein, we're to also stay away from temptation. You know what, getting off social media and off your phone and not watching as much TV or listening to as much radio would probably help a lot of our temptation issues. Not just with lust, I'm talking about with anger, with hatred. You listen to the news long enough, you're gonna hate somebody. Somebody, that's their goal, to make you hate someone. Hate anyone that's not like you, that's their goal. So we are to stay away from temptation because unchecked temptation will eventually cause you to sin, every time. And if unrepentant sin continues on, that will lead to the degradations of your minds, of your souls, and even your bodies. So you and I have to be aware that it is very easy easy to slip backwards if we're not careful. This is why, this is why Peter says, be sober, be alert, be vigilant, Because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion. You have an enemy, be awake. That's what he tells us to do, right? That's what Peter tells us to do. Why is all of this important? We are meant to grow through trials. We're meant to appreciate where God has us. We're meant to avoid sin, why? I say this all the time, but I think it's worth hearing over and over again. Why? Because you are the crescendo, you are the master, peace. You are the pinnacle of all of God's creation. You are the top of everything he has ever, ever done. And if James is correct that every good and perfect gift comes from God, you must also know that your life falls into that category. Hear me, please, that the fact that you are breathing right now and have blood coursing through your veins is a gift from God and not one to squander your life is more than a 30 second video on TikTok. Your life is more than how much is in your checking account. Your life is more than how pretty you are, or if you have a PhD at the end of your name. Your life is more than popularity or accumulating crap that's going to end up in a landfill. Your life is more than this. You are the masterpiece of the creator of the universe. So, so, so here's the thing. If we understand that, live your life on purpose. Those of you who are getting older in this room, right? Isn't it amazing, the closer we get to death, the the less and less we care about all the crap. Because you start to understand that I'm not gonna be able to take it with me. The things that I'm gonna remember when I'm on my deathbed, are those times when I've, I, you know, I'm driving down an old road with my girls in the car and we're listening to rock and roll way too loud and we're just laughing. We're having a good time, right? That's the stuff I'm gonna be thinking about. It's gonna be thinking about traveling with my wife. It's gonna be the time I get to spend with you guys. It's getting to see God's creation. It's, it's, it's that time with the Lord. It's that understanding that life is something more than 30-second blips and and what kind of car I drive. You and I are the masterpiece of God. And when we live in sin, and when we live unappreciative, it's like one walking up to a Rembrandt in the Louvre and throwing mud all over it. You are a beautiful piece of art, and what sin does is it taints the art. It corrupts the art. Do you know what what James says? I'm gonna spoil this for next week. James says that pure and perfect religion, everyone knows the first part, but they don't know the second part. Yes, to feed the widows and orphans and to take care of those that don't have anything. No, no, keep reading. And to stay unstained from the world. True religion is to have a relationship with Jesus. And yes, with that, we do wonderful things for people around us. But pure religion is to stay unstained from the, the ugliness. It's to not throw that mud on that Rembrandt or that Chagall or that Picasso, right? It is to understand that you are valuable and that should not make you arrogant. In fact, it should humble you tremendously. God sees you, he hears you, he values you, he loves you, live like it, live like it, live like it, okay? Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you're in this room and um, maybe you don't have a relationship with God, maybe you don't feel valued, maybe you don't feel like you have a purpose, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Muhammad is up here. He'd love to talk with you. If you have any questions, if you have anything you'd just like to ask us or, or talk to us about, Muhammad would love to talk with you, okay? We also have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything, Again, maybe you have not lived your life on purpose. Maybe you have wasted time. Maybe you're struggling with a sin. Maybe you need guidance when it comes to your work or your family or whatever. Let someone pray with you. Anything you need, please. The last thing is, is all the way around this room where we see a lamp on a table. And if you're sitting in the middle, there's some disposable communion on these posts. Communion is very simple, and I say this every single week, but I hope it never loses its its, its power, its strength. Communion is bread and wine that symbolizes the fact that Jesus came and gave his body and blood for us. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, if you struggle with, with having purpose, if you struggle with feeling like you're valued or loved or seen, the God of the universe that you are made in the image of sent his only son to be brutally killed so we could be forgiven and we could have a relationship with the creator. God sees you. He hears you. He knows where you're at. He knows your circumstances. He is just wanting you to lean on him. Lean on him and know how valuable you are. Everyone is welcome to take communion as long as you have asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, okay? Let me pray for you. Father God, we love you. Lord, you are so good to us, regardless of whatever situation we're going through, Lord. I pray that we can step back from whatever we're going through, whether it be good or bad, and let us ask, God, what do you want us to learn in this time? How do you want me to grow during this time? I pray that we can be appreciative, Lord, for what we have. I pray, God, that we can live our lives on purpose and with intentionality and with focus, Lord, I pray that we can start to notice that the truly important things in life, our relationships, our friendships, Lord, the the trees outside and, and, and just, God, open up our eyes to the things that are truly important. And Lord, let us know that you value us. Even if no one else in this world values us, you value us, God. Father, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. I pray that you keep your hand on everyone in this room, Lord. Until we meet again, God, and we pray all this in your name, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you so much.